If you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, John chapter 20 is where we will be this morning. It's the one of the four Gospels, the accounts of the life of Jesus, this one written by John, one of the apostles. So John chapter 20 is where we will be this morning. Everybody loves a good story. If you come to my house and you, my kids convince you to sit and read them a book, um, it will be very quickly followed by a second book and by a third book. And as long as you will sit there and read them books, they will sit and, and listen to books. Um, my sister-in-law, Hallie, has been with us this week, and I watched her in the course of two days just devour a book. I mean, she read through it. It was two days. It was a, it was a thick one, too. Um, I found myself up a little later than normal on Thursday night because I was at the end of a novel and I, I wanted to finish it because it was, it was a good story. And everybody loves a good story. And it's even better when the story is true, when it's a real-life account. There's something deeper that happens there. The story of the life of Jesus has been called the greatest story ever told, if you've ever heard that, the greatest story ever told. And, of course, it's part of this even greater story than just the life of Jesus. It's, it's the story of the gospel, the, the story that, that a God who loves people, he loves those that he has created so much that he's willing to send his son to pursue a relationship with him, to send his son that he would come and die and be raised to new life so that we would be eternally happy in him and so that he would receive glory. That's the greatest story ever told. And what makes the good news about the gospel and the story of Jesus so great and something that we would come together Sunday after Sunday to talk about is that it is true. It's not a fable. It's not a tall tale. It is a true story. And so my hope this morning is to simply walk through John chapter 20 and to reflect on why we're all here. We're all here to hear the story of Jesus' resurrection. And we may be here with, with different ears. I'm not sure who all is here. Some are here, and, and you may be a, a little skeptic, skeptical. You may not want to believe the story of the resurrection. Um, you have ears that are quick to disbelieve, ears that may be quick to mock. Some of you may be here with ears that have heard this story just one too many times, and it, and it feels like a little bit of an old story. I've, I've heard this so many times your ears may be a little dull or, or weary of the story of the resurrection do we really have to talk about this every year others of you though may be hungry to feast on the truth of the resurrection this morning ears that believe ears that are ready to rejoice countless other kinds of ears really other kinds of hearts i guess we would say but Whatever you came in, however you came in this morning, I pray that you would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to receive the message of John chapter 20. And as we reflect on these words, my hope is the same as John's. It's that you would believe, that you believe, would believe that God has sent, has been, that Jesus has been sent from God, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. Maybe you do believe this morning. I want that belief to be just awakened and stirred and, and, and made fresh. Maybe you are one of those people that's heard it for the thousandth time this morning. I pray that it would just, it would be like, like new wind rushing into you. Or maybe you'll hear something this morning that you've never heard before and you'll suddenly, you'll see what Mary and John and Peter and Thomas saw on the first Easter morning and on the days that would follow. 
John writes in his gospel as, as an eyewitness, as one who see, had seen and heard all that Jesus did and said. And after he describes the, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, which he was there and saw, down to the moment of the spear, he says he saw the spear thrust into Jesus' side and saw water and blood come out. And then in John chapter 19, just a few verses back, if you look at verse 40, it says, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. It's hard to imagine the emotions of the disciples on that Friday, not to mention the Saturday and then the Sunday that followed. The, the flow of, of the Gospels, the chronology of the days that lead up to Jesus' death and burial, make it seem like everything moved really, really fast. That there was this moment on Palm Sunday, that was a week ago that we were talking about Palm Sunday, this moment where they were hailing Jesus as the King of the Jews, the one that they had been waiting for, and then all of a sudden, he's, he's put on trial, he is, he is mocked, and then he is crucified as a common criminal. And the disciples, except for John, every one of them scattered when the mob that was led by Judas showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane. I wonder what it would have been like to be those ten remaining disciples, minus John and obviously Judas, and to hear the news, to have someone come and report to you that, that Jesus was dead, that he was dead. How could that be? You would have thought this is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is not what we all signed up for when he called us to follow him. And so the disciples slowly gathered on Friday, maybe it was not until Saturday, and the feeling may have been more shock than, than sadness. I mean, what just happened? Is he really dead? They would have all gone to John and said, tell us, you were there. What, what really happened? Did you really see him die? And John would have said, yeah, I saw it. And so now what? And they probably sat there and they rehashed everything that had happened in the recent hours and days, his words, his grief in the garden, Judas's betrayal, and their cowardly run through the darkness and every memory would have brought pain and anguish and, and just this sense of confusion. What is going on? The disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, you may remember the story in Luke chapter 24. Um, Jesus appears to them on the road to Emmaus, but they don't recognize him at first. And Jesus kind of plays like he doesn't know what is going on. Not, not in, a, in a deceiving manner, but he just says, um, what's going on? You all seem so sad. And they explained, they said they were telling him about who Jesus was. They say he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And then listen to these words, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped, but now all their hopes were dashed. You know, in life, there's not much that's more difficult to take than unrealized expectations. When you are expecting something to happen, you're sure it's going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. This doesn't compare at all to the death of Jesus, but imagine that you were planning a, a summer trip or a, a visit to go on vacation and see family, and, and you've got it planned. You know, it's, it's months in advance, and you're waiting, you're expecting, and and the day before you're supposed to leave, something happens and you can't go. 
You've been waiting for months and months, and now what do you do? Or maybe you, um, maybe you're expecting to get hired for a new job. You've, you've had an interview, and, and it all went really well, and you said, this is, this is guaranteed, and you sit by the phone, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and no one ever calls, and your expectation does not come true. It's, it's hard to function. It's, it's, it's hard to believe when something that we thought was guaranteed doesn't come about. And all that the disciples had expected, all that they had, had longed for, the things that they had actually invested their entire lives into were suddenly gone. They woke up Saturday morning and they had to remind themselves probably that it was, it was all over, that Jesus was dead and with him died all of their hopes. I'd imagine it was probably pretty hard to get out of bed. And so when Sunday morning comes... And the first news that they get is that Jesus' body is gone. Then suddenly they become even more confused than they were before. Let's read here in John chapter 20 with these things in mind. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Can you imagine the shock of that, walking towards the tomb and the stone is, is rolled away? Look at verse 2. So she ran. There's a lot of running in this chapter. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Let's pause here. The writer of the Gospel of Luke gives us a little extra insight as to this, this exchange between Mary and the disciples. John zeroes in on, on Mary Magdalene as the representative head of this, this group of women. Luke tells us that there were more that had gone to the tomb. And he writes this in Luke 24. He says, When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Then listen to this. But the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The, the disciples are confused, they're, they're disheartened, they didn't know what to make of this report. It made absolutely no sense to them. Why would anyone take the body of Jesus? And while they couldn't believe what was going on, two of them said, well, we've got to go check this out, we have to investigate. And that's what we see here, uh, continuing in John chapter 20, verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple, which is how John refers to himself, uh, went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own home. So Peter and John take off, and John, either younger or more in shape, uh, beats Peter there, gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't go in. And then Peter comes close on his heels, and in classic Peter fashion, uh, rushes past John and just goes straight into the tomb to see what's going on. So then John eventually follows Peter in, and they both stand there and they stare at the linen wrappings and this face cloth that are lying where the body had been, probably speechless. 
at first it seems like they don't know what to think, but then the text says about John, it says that he believed. Believed what? Believed Mary? Well, at least he believed Mary at this point, that she wasn't making something up, that the body of Jesus was gone. So for sure, at the very least, he believed Mary. But he and Peter are standing there, and they're staring. It, it notes the, the linen wrappings and the face cloth. And it would seem as they're staring that they conclude that this isn't some sort of tomb robbery. This isn't something where uh, people have come to disgrace the body of Jesus. Everything was, was fairly neat. Everything was, was in order. And, and John looks and looks, and finally he, he sees. He believes. He understands that it would seem that this is, this is kind of, of new belief. I might even call it like a confused belief. But he believed the words of Jesus. They were slowly coming back to him that he said he was going to rise again. And, and it's every, these, these clues, are, they're starting, he's starting to piece things together, and it's, it's slowly making sense to him. Now, this, this should be so encouraging to all of us, because if your gut reaction, whether in the past or even now, to the resurrection of Jesus is, no, that's impossible, then realize that that was the gut reaction of all of the disciples. Mary comes back and they say, this is nonsense. We don't know what you're talking about. The disciples, they had walked with Jesus for three years. They had heard him say this. This is what came out of his mouth. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. These men had no idea what Mary's words meant. They had no idea what to do with the empty tomb at first. When the women reported that the body of Jesus was gone, they saw it as nonsense. But Jesus, in some ways, he, he allows them to come to this, this empty tomb, to find this scene that they, that they can't make sense of, but they slowly start to fill in the clues and, and see what's going on. It's like he's preparing them for what is, is going to happen a little bit later. It's this, this slow reveal. Remember we said this is the greatest story ever, ever told. Every good story has some cliffhangers. It has some to-be-continued parts to it where you just don't know what's going to happen next. And it causes Mary and, and the disciples, they, they shake their heads in wonder, and they just say, what is, what's going on? We believe, but we're not totally sure what is going on here. Well, it says that Peter and John moved on from the tomb. They reported what they saw, but then they all returned to their homes, it says, except for Mary. Mary had to stick around. Look in, in, again in John 20, in verse 11 now. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, stop here. Mary is still, she's trying to piece things together. She, she's just, she's looking for the body of Jesus. That's where she's at still. She's, where is the body? Uh, maybe her concern is that the Jews or the Romans had wanted to disgrace his body as some sort of last job. Whatever's going through her mind, she is completely heartbroken. She is weeping. She's so distraught that it seems like when two angels appear in the tomb, she has 
pretty much no reaction to the fact that these two people have just appeared in the tomb. She just says, where's Jesus' body? She continues to be concerned only with the location of the dead body of this teacher that she loved. And so she sees this gardener and says, do you know where he is? And she says, if you can show me where he is, I'll, I'll pick him up and take him somewhere. Mary, she's not thinking rationally. She says, I'll, I'll, I just want to bring him back to where he's supposed to be. And then in verse 16, the cliffhanger that to be continued for Mary is suddenly resolved. Verse 16, John writes, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren. and Say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. How kind of Jesus. His revelation to Mary of the truth of the resurrection comes when he makes it clear that he knows her, that he knows her name. And once he reveals that he knows her, she then knows him as her teacher, as her risen Lord. I'm reminded of those words from Galatians 4. You remember we studied these just recently where Paul talks about how we have come to know God and then he says, no, wait, rather that we have been come, that we have, that we are known by God. Everything became clear in that moment for Mary. She didn't ask how, she simply believed because she saw him and because she heard him call her name. I think there's a lesson in here. There's something to note for, that we see in all the appearances of Jesus, and it's this. It's that Jesus is the one who reveals himself to those who know him. Jesus is the one that reveals himself to those who know him. He's, not, he's never spotted in a crowd, you know, when you look at these, these appearances. There's never a moment where someone comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, is Jesus, is that you? Like, like they don't, you know, it's not one of those kind of appearances where they see him passing somewhere and say, I think I saw Jesus. He, he makes it very clear when he reveals himself that this is who he is. And he reveals himself to people who, who would know him. And there's no confusion about it. I think this is the lesson, and it's that Jesus is the one who knows our name. And he is the one who, who calls us. Scripture says that there is none who seeks after God. In our, in our sins, we are not looking for Jesus. But Jesus, like he was looking for Mary, is looking for us. And when the risen Christ comes and he calls us by name, then through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, we hear and we respond. We say, teacher, master, Lord. So Mary's cliffhanger is resolved. But it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say, all right, hey, let's go see the disciples together. Me and you, we'll go surprise them. Instead, he says, Mary, I want you to take a message. I want you to tell them that um, I want you to take this message to them. And we don't see the, the reaction of the disciples to this message. Um, it's not recorded. Maybe they were a little bit more sympathetic to Mary at this time, that it wasn't just nonsense. You know, I mean, she was right the first time, so maybe this would turn out to be true. But everything for them becomes clear just a, a few hours later, it would seem. Look in, in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, so it's evening on Easter, the first Easter Sunday, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. 
The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. The disciples had had reconvened. They'd come back together after a brief respite on their own in their different their individual homes, and now they're they're in the the upper room. We would assume with the doors closed. The doors are probably bolted shut. Uh, why are they there? The text says they were there because they were afraid. They were scared of the Jews. The the news about the missing body of Jesus was was slowly spreading. And they were probably the top, top culprits as far as what was going on. Why, where is the body of Jesus? What has happened? And the Jewish authorities, they assumed, were probably looking for them to say, what is, what's going on here? So they believed, but there was still some uncertainty going on here. And in the midst of this stress and dismay, all of a sudden Jesus appears in the middle of the room and he says, Peace be with you. And then I don't know if he said anything, but it says that he showed them his his hands, and he showed them the wound in his side, and he reveals these things, and the disciples suddenly rejoice. It would seem that Jesus waited for the perfect moment, as he had with Mary. You remember they they they'd heard Mary's report. John and Peter went, they heard John and Peter had come back, and then Mary comes back and says, I, I saw the Lord, and now they're, they're waiting fearfully to see what is going to happen next, and then Jesus suddenly appears in the room and says, Peace be with you. And in this instant, those who had been filled with fear were now filled with joy unspeakable. And the upper room, think about this, it had gone from this place of, of mourning to a place of fear and confusion, and now it's this place of, of, of joy and, and peace and excitement about what Jesus had done. And it's just with, with those words that he says, peace be with you, and, the, and the, the picture of his risen body. So they respond, and, and after they calm down a little bit, Jesus pronounces peace over them a second time. And then he immediately, right away, he describes their mission. And their mission is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the power of the Holy Spirit. And these, again, who had doubted, for so many days were now filled with supernatural courage and joy because now they believed they had seen the risen Christ. Well, not all of the disciples had seen the risen Christ. Look in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, or the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, here's what I would love to know. What was Thomas doing? This is an encouragement to always be together where the followers of Jesus are. You know, maybe he was watching the game, or you know, maybe he fell asleep. Whatever it was, he missed out on the first appearance of Jesus to the disciples. Um, I don't know what it could be, but anyways, verse 25 reads, So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands... Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, eight days, so over a week, Thomas is listening to the disciples tell him what had happened. 
and he's in the dark. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas, Thomas was there. Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said again, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Thomas is a man of our age, isn't he? He wants proof. He had to wait for over a week as the disciples continued to say, We saw him. As the disciples, I would say, continued to give him proof. We saw him. And then Jesus makes a special appearance just for Thomas. You know, it's funny. You see how Jesus talks to him. He says, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand. Jesus heard everything that Thomas had said in that room. He knew exactly what Thomas was thinking. He'd heard Thomas's words and he was here to settle the matter for his friend. But it would seem that as he settles the matter, there's kind of a slight rebuke of sorts, isn't there? He says, so, in a sense, this is what Jesus says. He says, so you believe now that you have seen? And then it, I almost feel like Jesus turns and looks at us. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and have still believed. And John picks up on those words, I think. And that's what I believe are these, these closing words of this chapter. He's given all these resurrection, resurrection accounts up to this point. And then he says, therefore, verse 30, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's almost as if John says this to us. He says, says you haven't seen the risen Christ. You didn't see his miracles. Uh, you didn't hear his teaching, but I was there. I was there, and I watched him crucified. I watched the soldier take the spear and shove it into his side. I saw water and blood come out. He was dead. And I was there. I saw this stone rolled away, and I walked in, and I saw these, these linen claws, and I saw the face cloth lying there, just perfectly neat. They were there, and I believed in that moment. I wasn't really sure what was going on, but I believed he says, and I was there. I heard with my own ears, I heard Jesus say, peace be with you. I was in that room and I saw him standing there. And Mary was there. Mary met him in the garden and he said her name and she knew it was Jesus. And John would continue maybe and say, fine, if you want to be like Thomas, then persist in your disbelief until you see what you think that you need to see. But Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who have not seen and yet believe. And I've written. I've written all of this stuff for you so that you would believe. Some people are always asking for proof of the resurrection. And I feel like what John would say is, what more do you want? I just gave you a detailed account of what happened. People can gather evidence all they want. And I think that there are countless reasons, even outside of, of what Scripture says, to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But I think that one of the main reasons to believe is that John, who was an eyewitness, who was there, he wrote it all down. 
and it's been preserved for thousands of years. We, we are so quick to doubt what he said. But you see this account. You see what he's written here. This is an eyewitness account from him, from Mary, from Peter, from Thomas, and there are others. And that's why this is, he says, I wrote this so that you would believe. I think we are very quick to go outside of Scripture and try to find proofs of the resurrection. And I think if we go, that they are there. But I think the first place we go is here. And we say, John said it was there. And this has lasted. This is God's word to us. And it is written here. But still, I think however much proof I can give you or John can give you, Christianity is a belief in Jesus. It's, it's not something that we arrive simply at intellectually by having all the facts. It's rooted in faith, in belief, in trust, faith that God raised his son from the dead. That's, what, that's the, one of the cornerstones of our belief is that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. That's what we are all here gathered saying. Jesus was dead and he is now alive. We believe that he resurrected from the dead. And people think that we're silly for believing that because it's seen with eyes of faith. It's, it's a miracle of belief that Jesus does and must perform in, in our hearts. He's the one who initiates it. Remember, he's the one that went to Mary. He's the one that went to the disciples. He's the one that went to Thomas. And when he comes, he reveals himself to you. He says, here are my hands and my side. He, he calls you by name. And when he calls you by name, you, you hear his voice. And he speaks peace. And, and you, you hear that peace. And he says, stop doubting and believe. And when we hear by the miracle of faith, when we hear by the miracle of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the resurrected Christ, not literally, but when we hear him calling to us, then we too are raised from the dead. We are raised out of our sin and out of our rebellion against him into this, this new life that he has come to offer. And we, like Thomas, fall on our knees and say, my Lord and my God, that is the proper response to the resurrection. If Jesus has called you out of death and into life this morning, then realize that it's not because you are something special. And it's not because you got all the facts. But it's because in the midst of all your confusion, like the disciples, in the midst of all your doubt, like Thomas, in the midst of your weeping, like Mary, he called you by name. And he pronounced peace to you through his cross. And he has caused you to believe. And so our response is to rejoice like the disciples, to worship like Thomas, and to cling to Jesus like Mary. Again, I don't know who else here or where everyone's heart is at, but maybe there's still that, that cliffhanger, that to-be-continued part in, in, in your reaction to the story of Easter. If you're still kind of standing back, wondering what this all means, then this is the greatest story ever told. And it goes way back before even the death and resurrection of Jesus. It goes back to the beginning of time when God created the world. He created it perfect and holy, and he created us human beings in his image. And yet in our sin and in our rebellion, we rejected God's will. We rejected God's law. We sinned against him. We rebelled against him. And because of that sin, death has come over the whole world. Spiritual death and physical death exists in the world. But the beauty of the gospel, that, that's, that's all the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus has come. 
that God sent Jesus in his great love at the perfect time to be born of a virgin, to live the life that we could not live, and then to die the death that we deserve because of our sin. And then he raises us up to new life through his resurrection. And he just calls us to repent, to repent and to believe, to turn from our sins and to believe in the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has died and has risen again to give us new life. And if we do, Scripture says we will be saved. The message of Easter is this surprising triumph of life over death. It was nothing that anyone really expected. Remember, the disciples' hopes were all dashed. This is not what they thought was going to happen. But when it becomes clear, this is one of the most joyous days, if not the most joyous day in all of history. And I pray that as we've, we've thought through John chapter 20, just looked at, at John's account, that maybe for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time that you would believe, that you would believe that Jesus is sent from God, that he is the Son of God, and that if you believe in him, you will have life because he has conquered death through his death and through his resurrection.